0: psalm 63 so take your bible and turn there i did send out an email this week about this new book that's come out i'm not like the pastor who takes all my sermons and puts them in the book i would have a thousand books like that just kidding but some of you know that i worked on a a doctor's degree from the university of wales for five or six years and that has now been put in the print And it's called Subversive Meals. And, uh, you know, I've only written three books that have been published by publishers. And one was written in 1984, and I never wrote anything after that. And then a publisher asked me would I write something on the kingdom of God, and I did that. And you're familiar with that book. And then this book is on Subversive Meals, and it's a study of the Lord's Supper. As a real meal, not just a little piece of cracker and some grape juice. And I hope I don't write any more books after this. This is it. I just want you to know that. But in my last two books, I have said a word about the President's class. And in the first book, I dedicated it, the Heaven on Earth book, I dedicated that to the President's class. And in this one, I mentioned it in the Acknowledgements. Now, there's only two people or groups that I've done this with. One was my wife. I acknowledged her in the first book, and I dedicated the second book to her. And the President's Class. The first book I dedicated to the President's Class, and this book I acknowledged Now here's what I said about the President's Class. To all the members of the President's Class Bible study who prayed for me through this lengthy project and wondered if I would ever get finished. (laughs) Thank you, I did. (laughs) Anyway, I don't talk about. But anyway, I do. That's a sincere prayer. I mean, I want to thank you uh, for doing that, and uh, I'll be glad to sign those books. Okay, Psalm sixty-three. Now we're going to look at the superscription above Psalm sixty-three, which says, "A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah." Now these superscriptions are what are known as canonical superscriptions, which means when they when the Old Testament was was uh, collected and put into the canon. became known as the canon of Scripture. That's the full 39 books. The superscriptions were part of that. They weren't inspired, but they added that to the canon of Scripture, and so these are very important. And here, all we find is that David wrote this psalm, or he writes it, as he reflects back on his time in the wilderness of Judah. Now, wilderness is a very general description of the desert. And uh, there are only two times that David, in the Bible, it talks about David going into the wilderness or the desert. And the first time was when he was fleeing from King Saul. And then the second time is when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, who was trying to uh, overthrow the government. And we think this is the second time, and here's the reason. In uh, verse 11, it's called the Psalm of David. In verse 11, David here is described as the king. So he is, he's, he's not running from King Saul, he's the king himself. So this is uh, written when David himself is the king. We know in verse 9 it says there are those who seek my life because he is in danger from a group of people, not just from King Saul. And then in verse 10 it tells about these people are going to fall by the sword. There's going to be a military uh, defeat. Uh, His enemies are going to be defeated. So the only incident mentioned in the scriptures when he goes into the wilderness and these things are included would be when he was running from Absalom. Now we've looked back at 2 Samuel when he runs from Absalom at least five or six times. I'm going to turn back there, but I'm only going to read one verse, okay? So look back at 2 Samuel and chapter 15, and I'll show you where it's mentioned that he goes into the wilderness. We'll look at that much. So in 2 Samuel chapter 15... And verses you know thirteen onward, he is escaping for his life. He has to leave Jerusalem, and in verse 23 it says this this is 2 Samuel 1523. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over, and the king himself crossed over the book the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness so he's running from Absalom escapes Egypt uh, escapes Judah rather and he ends up in the wilderness and then if you look at chapter 16 and verse 14 it says this the king and all the people who were with him meaning in the wilderness became weary but there's not much to eat out there, and there's certainly nothing to drink. They became weary, and so they had to refresh themselves. They had to find something to eat and drink out there in the wilderness, and that was not an easy task. So I'm going to use that as the background for the psalms. So turn over to Psalm 63. Uh, David is in the wilderness, and he's recording these events. Okay. Now here's how I'm going to outline the book. Okay, This, this psalm. Verses 1 through 8 talks about David's future. Verses 1 through 8, David's future. Okay. And we can see that that's about David because if you look at verse 1, in the middle of verse, says, my soul thirsts for you. It's about David. Okay. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied. It's about David. Verse 8, my soul follows close behind you. It's about David. It's all about David, these first eight verses. But then verses 9 through 11 are about David's enemies and what's going to happen to them in the future. In verse 9, notice what it says, but those who seek my life. So he's now dealing with a different group. So that's how we're going to divide it. Verses 1 through 8, about David, verses 9 through 11, about his enemies, okay? So... As you look through the verbs in verses 1 through 8, most of those deal with the future. So I, I'm calling this David's future. Okay. So look at verse 1. Here's what it says. God, O oh God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. <clears throat> now what I'm going to do throughout this teaching is... If I can find a lesson here, I'm just going to tell you what the lesson is from the verse. And uh, in this verse, I'm going to say the first lesson is that God should be our priority. Notice what he says. Early I will seek you. Uh, David puts God first in his life. First things first. First thing David does when he wakes up, he starts seeking the Lord. And it's a verse like this that has uh, produced uh, our devotionals that we have and People talking about having a quiet time in the morning uh, based on verses like this. But uh, the word early here doesn't necessarily mean early in time, although I think that's the case. But it just speaks of him being eager. When he gets up, he's eager to see God. And God should be our priority as well. Now notice how that psalm opens. He says, oh God, you are my God. The atheist says, no God. David says, Oh God. And then he says, My God. So David uh, puts God first in his life and God is his priority. Now look what else it says in that verse. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land. That's the wilderness. That's where he is. Where there is no water. Now, notice, isn't that interesting? He's in a place where there is no water, and he doesn't say, My soul thirsts for water, does it? He's in a place where there's not a lot of vegetation, and he doesn't say, My soul hungers for food, does it? He's in a place, he says, that's a dry and thirsty land with no water, but what does his soul thirst for? His soul thirsts for God. And so, if I would give you a lesson, I would say, not only should God be our priority, God should be our passion. We should be thirsting and hungering for a relationship with God. And, uh, and he says, it's his soul thirst and his flesh longs for. Uh, that means David in his entirety. That means the whole person. Uh, David is not like some people we know who can compartmentalize things. God is in this compartment. Work is in this compartment. Family is in this compartment. Uh, David's whole life is consumed by God. That's all he longs for. That's what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what David does. He's he's, uh, hungering and thirsting for God. And then he says this. So, I have looked for you... In the sanctuary. Now, this is the tabernacle. He's probably thinking back. This is my state in life. I hunger and I thirst for God. That's all. God's first in my life. And uh, when I was back in Jerusalem, guess what I did? I looked for you in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. That's where God's presence was. And so David would go to the tabernacle where God, you know, dwelt between the wings of the cherub. And so in these happier times, that's where he would seek God. In the tabernacle. Now, had I spent some extra time in 2 Samuel 15, you would have seen that David actually carried out the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness. I didn't read that to you, because I just thought, you know, wow, we've been through all this before. But when he escaped Jerusalem, he told the priest, he said, Go get the Ark of the Covenant, where the cherubim's wings are and God dwells, and carry it out into the wilderness. I want God with me. But then he had second thoughts. He says, no, he said, God should be back in Jerusalem. (laughs) Take the ark back into the tabernacle. And so now there's David out there in the wilderness, and he seeks God right there under the stars. He realizes that God's not located in one place. God met Hagar in the wilderness. Moses meets God on the backside of the desert. He's not in some... Location, one location. Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And angels minister to him and they feed him and they take care of him. And here is David out in the wilderness. And he's not saying, where are we going to get something to eat? We read in 2 Samuel 16, 14, he was refreshed out there. Somehow he got what he needed. What he really wanted was God's presence. And that's what he yearns for. So that's what it says. So I look for you in happier times back in the tabernacle in the sanctuary. And notice what he desired. I desired to see your power, that's your strength, and your glory, your magnificence, your effulgence, uh, uh, God's manifest presence. Uh, You could actually see the presence of God. Remember when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? God appeared as a cloud by day. You could actually see his presence. And a pillar of fire by night. God manifested his presence. That's what David wants. He wants to actually sense God's presence. I think in the 21st century we don't think about sensing God's presence. We don't think about God's strength and God's glory. So few of us have seen God's glory. We don't even we don't, wouldn't even know what it looks like if it showed up. But I have been in meetings where God showed up before. And I can tell you you couldn't even stand up in some of those meetings. Rare, but that's what David wanted. That's what he yearned for. That's what we should be yearning for. We should be yearning for God's strength. We should be yearning for God's presence. We should we should see God's presence and God's power over sickness and over demons and over evil and over our poverty and over our circumstances. That's what I'm yearning for. That's what I want to see. Once in my life. You know, I don't have to see it every day. And that's what we should be yearning for. So David, when God's presence shows up, you know, that's a wow moment. All you can do is go. Just like fireworks. Powerfully sent up into the sky. And then they burst and you see their presence. as they manifest themselves. And all you can do is go, wow, look at that. Well, if you were in the presence of God, you'd go, wow. And that's what David yearns for. He said, I used to see it in the tabernacle. I could actually feel his presence there. And we should be yearning for that presence of God. So God should be our priority and God should be our passion. That's what we should be yearning for. Now look at verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life. Now it goes to the future. He knows this. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Say, God should be our priority. He should be our passion. He should be the object of our praise. And praise would simply be declaring God's power and God's presence. We had somebody give a praise report today. Jim Lang stood up. He said, I want to say a word for God. And he talked about God's power and God's presence in his life. And many of us can talk about that. And David says, all I want to do is in the future, because of your loving kindness, that's the basis for this, my lips shall praise you. Uh, that's what he looks forward to. He doesn't expect to stay out in the wilderness forever. He expects one day to get back there in Jerusalem and, and just begin praising God and telling the people what God has done for him. The basis of that praise is your loving kindness, because your loving kindness is better than life. Now life is pretty good. It's better than the other option, isn't it? Here a lot of people say I want to go to heaven. I mean, I really think you want to stay around as long as you can. And you prove that every time you go to Dr. Cain and say, so Can you give me a prescription? so let me tell you something life is precious and life is good but there's something that's better than life itself and here's what it is look what it says your loving kindness is better than life and God's loving kindness speaks of his compassion it speaks of the agreement that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses And David, the covenant that he made, which he said, if you are obedient to me and you seek me and you do this, then I will show you my loving kindness. I'll show you mercy. I'll show you compassion. And you know, you can live life without God. You can live life okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something better than just living life. It's living life and experiencing God's loving kindness toward you. God coming through for you God keeping His agreement with you. When you say, Lord, do something, and He does it, and He does it on the basis that He said He would do it. If we were obedient to Him and we loved Him, that's better yet than just living. So we see that His loving kindness is the basis for all this. Life ends, but His loving kindness endures forever. Because this covenant that He has surpasses even our life. And then He says this in verse 4. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will bless you as long as I live. You know, the Psalms end with these words. Let everything that hath breath, what? Praise Praise the Lord. Lord. Let everything that's living, praise the Lord. So David says, well, as long as I live, I'm going to praise you. My lips will praise you. And then he goes on and he says, Thus I will bless you while I live. The end of verse 3 said, My lips shall praise you. Thus will I bless you while I live. To bless him and to praise him is done with our lips. And then he says this at the end of verse 4, And I will lift up my hands in your name. So here we see he praises God with his lips. And he lifts his hands up to God. And I don't know exactly why they did it, but Leviticus says, when you worship God, lift your hands up. Maybe it's a sign of surrender. Maybe it's a sign pointing up and saying you're great, you know. Maybe it's a sign saying I need you. Show your loving kindness to me. Come through on the covenant, the agreement that you made with me. Don't let me down. <laughs> Maybe it's like a baby reaching out to its parents. You ever pick a baby up from its mother and it didn't want to be with you? And what did it First thing it does, it starts reaching out. David says, "I'm just reaching out to you. I'm in the wilderness. <laughs> you know, I need to see you. You move in power, and I need to see your glory manifest." Oh Lord, I'm just praising. Help, you know. Maybe it's that kind of lifting up of holy hands. We're not sure, but the praising God and the lifting of holy hands goes together. Because let me tell you something. Let's imagine that God just moved in great power. And everybody in this room that was sick was healed. Maybe like Jesus did one day. Maybe that would just happen just once. And we could sense God's presence. I guarantee you none of us would let our hands hang down. We wouldn't be going like this. We'd be going like, (gasps) That's what you have happening here. When God's presence is there, that's the response. The response is naturally to praise him and to lift our hands up. Now, look at the result of all this. My soul shall be satisfied as marrow, as with marrow and fatness. Now, notice, this is very interesting. Notice the difference between verse 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, he longs. Do you see that? He longs for God, he thirsts for God. In verse 1, he longs and he thirsts. And he says, my soul thirsts. But look in verse 5. He says, my soul shall be what? Satisfied. Satisfied. He doesn't have to long anymore because God comes through and he's satisfied. And he tells us how he's satisfied. He uses a simile there. Do you see that? As with marrow and fatness. And uh, the Jews in Old Testament times uh, thought eating fat in the marrow of the bone was through the leg of the lamb... It's like being in Paul Geppin. I mean, they just... They just you, know, you might like a T-bone steak. They like the fat. I don't understand that, but... Uh, they're satisfied. But they're satisfied with God. You see that? It's God that they thirst for, and it's God that satisfies them. So God's our portion. We should be satisfied with Him. Some people say, you know, they love Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough. Well, then you don't have the right kind of relationship with Jesus or with God. Because God should be your total portion. You should be satisfied with God. And then he says this, And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. He lifted up his hands, and now he praises God with lips. It's all in the future. This is the result of God coming through on his covenant promise and manifesting his power and his presence. And then verse 6 he says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Now that's interesting. Because in verse 1, he says, early I will seek you. But in verse 6, he remembers God in the night watches. Do you see that? In the morning he seeks God, but in the evening when he puts his head on the pillow... He reflects upon God. He meditates upon God. It tells me something that David doesn't go to sleep immediately when he puts his head on his pillow. He takes time to reflect on God and God's power and God's presence, and he just churns and turns over these thoughts about God. Now, remember where he is. He's out in the wilderness, and what's his pillow? Probably a rock. And what are these covers? Probably a canopy of heaven. And the you know, Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And when you look up at the heaven, you say, This God knows how. And you look up there and you go, Oh, this God must be great. And the heavens manifest his glory, especially when you're out in the desert where there are no lights, you know. And it causes David to reflect on God's majesty. So he says, He meditates. Look at that. He meditates. On God. Not just about God, but on God. In the night watches. Is that plural? Oh, there are about four watches at night, aren't there? Sometimes you would stay up all night. Meditating on God. Never went to sleep. So, Jesus would do this. He would just go and get with God at night. And just stay up all night. In the presence of God. And just out to soak in. He does this out in the wilderness, and he's not worried about where he's going to be, what he's going to get for food. Meditates on God. That goes back to Psalm 1, doesn't it? Doesn't the scripture say something in Psalm 1 about meditating on the law? Meditating on the law day and night? And so we see that this is built again on Psalm 1, like many of the Psalms. And then in verse 7, Because you have been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. Uh, Because in the past, you've come through and you've been my help. Therefore, now and in the future, in the shadow of your wings and under your protection, meaning Absalom and his enemies, I will, look at this, rejoice. That's a crazy thing to be doing when your enemies are trying to take your life, isn't it? But notice what he calls God there in verse 7. You have been my help. You see that? Verse 7, my help. Verse 1, my God. You see that? My God, my help. My God, my help. Now think, it's not me being God's helper. It's not me being God's helper. It's God being my help. There's an old book. About 50 years ago. Bob. God is my co-pilot. Not I'm God's co- co- co-pilot. God's my co-pilot. God's my helper. What, hell, what does this mean? It means he comes and he assists you. If God is your helper, that means he doesn't allow you, just leave you out on your own to fend for yourself. He comes to your aid. On what basis? His loving kindness, the agreement that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that covenant agreement. If your heart is after God, then God will show you loving kindness, and God comes to your aid. Now, we don't like this. We think that we're supposed to be God's helper, but God's our Father. And your Father helps you in the time of need. God doesn't have any need. Is there something God can't do that he needs your help? No, but there's a lot that you need, and you need his help. So God is your assistance. i talking about cooperation here. Okay. God and us co-labors together uh, with God. So here we're not left to defend for ourselves. David has all. This is what David thinks about when he's in the wilderness. Okay. And then look what he says in verse 8. My soul follows close behind you very interesting. Look back at verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. But now what does his soul do? Follows close behind. And the word there, follows close, is uh, the, from the Hebrew word that's normally translated cleave. It's used in Genesis where it talks about man should leave his husband, father and, and mother and cleave to his wife. Uh, so David says, my soul cleaves to you. So carries the idea of glued to you. He's in hot pursuit of God. He won't, he doesn't allow very much distance to get between him and God. And then he goes on and says, and your right hand upholds me. It's like God has you by the hand. That's about as far as he gets from God. And God upholds him. God holds him up. Not going to let him down. He lifts him up. And notice that he pursues God. He seeks God. He's close behind God. If I gave you a lesson, I'd say, it's important that you don't get ahead of God. <coughs> We'd to stay right close to God, but he leads the way. It's when you get ahead of God and you have your plans, and then you expect God to come to your aid based on your plans, that's not too good. So he says that he stays close to God and God upholds him with his hand. Okay? So all that is about David and about the situation that David's in and that he expects get out of the situation and continue to praise the Lord. Now we move to David's enemies. Now look at verse 9. But those, notice the contrast, but those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. That's interesting wording, isn't it? David seeks God. His enemies seek him. (laughs) And they seek to take his life. And the end result is that they're going to die. That's basically what it means. Lower parts of the earth simply means that they're going to end up, they have traps that they've set for David, they're going to be caught in their own traps, and they're going to end up dying. That's just a way of saying dying. And then, verse 10 says, they shall fall by the sword. It tells you how they're going to die. They're going to die on the battlefield. It's going to be a military victory for David, a military death to his enemies and they shall be a portion for the jackals. Some of your translations say foxes, but it should be jackals. It's talking about a scavenger. The jackals are the last of the scavengers that come upon a fallen enemy, prey, and pull off the sinew from the bones. The bigger scavengers get the good meat, get the heart, and all that kind of stuff. But the jackals... Come and just pull off the leftovers from the bone, and so he says, "You're not going to get away. You're going to be a portion for the jackals." Uh, this means there's not going to be any burials. His enemies are going to fall. They're not going to be honored. They're not going to be given dignity. It's going to be a humiliating death. They're going to end up being dog meat, you know, roadkill. We'd say that they were, but. Look at verse 11. But, by contrast, the king, what's going to happen to him? (coughs) He shall rejoice in God. Now, up until this point, David's been talking about it himself as, I, me, my, my soul, I will. But now notice it's third person. See that? The king, probably... Uh, David has put this in the song, and this is where the choir comes in. They all start saying, But the king shall rejoice in God. You can see how that would come if it were a song being sung by those in the tabernacle. Uh, But it's the truth. The king, look at his outcome. He shall rejoice in God. You see that? In God. Not in himself, not brag about what he's done. His boast will be in God. Now, watch this. Not only will the king rejoice in God, but everyone who swears by him shall boast for glory. Now the question is, by him, what does that refer to? Does that refer to the king? Everybody that stands by David? (laughs) They're going to boast? Or does it mean that everyone who also, like David, has entered that covenant and has kept the word, their word, They swear. I swear I will keep the covenant. And my Bible has him in a capital H to let you see that the translators thought that this was referring to God, and I think it is. Not only will the king rejoice in God, but everyone who swears by God and enters that covenant does what they promise to do. They shall glory. And that means we are in the same boat as King David. And Christ has actually entered, God has entered into a new covenant with his people that's better than the old covenant. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That means God will come through for you, whatever you're going through, and you too, in the end, your enemies will fail, and you will glory. But, the mouth of those who speak lies. They say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. And they promise to keep the covenant and obey God, but they do not keep the oath. They swear, but they lie. And that's church people, and that's Absalom, and that's God's people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped was Absalom stopped? He was literally stopped. Between branches and his men died in battle. So this psalm uh, speaks of David's relationship with God. He's a man after God's own heart. Can you tell that? You can really tell it in this song. Man after God's own heart and as a result he knows that God will come to his aid because God will keep his covenant. He will experience God's loving kindness. And this is our confidence, too. So, let me just summarize as I look down these verses. God must be our priority. We should seek Him early. God should be our passion. We should seek Him wholeheartedly, not compartmentalized. God should be the object of our praise. We should boast of Him enthusiastically. Do we do enough of that? I'm glad that Jim Lang did that today. God should be our portion. We should be satisfied with him. And then finally, God should be our partner. We need to be in cooperation with him. We need to stay close by. Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 64 where the superscription gives us no information and for the first time in weeks, we're forced to deal with the text only and try to figure out its meaning. So that's where we'll go. Right. Lord, I thank you that you are our portion in good times and bad. Help us reflect upon you in the early morning. May you be our priority. May we be eager to have a relationship with you throughout the day and then in the night watch as we put our head on the pillow to reflect about your goodness. Help us each day, Lord, to renew that covenant that we have entered in with you and we said, yes, Lord, I do accept you as my Lord and Savior. Help us to be true to that covenant when we showed it through our baptism, and we said, Lord, we died the old life, and we are now new creatures, and we walk close with you. Oh, Lord, help us to be like David and his people who were faithful, no matter what the circumstances. not be like the enemies in Christ's name.